with your questions. I hope I don't have it done where I can't think of anything like the April 1st one. <laughs> Ochoa, I have a question for you today. And my question is, what makes a good bedtime? A good bedtime? What makes a good Why, bedtime? Do I don't know. I saw him went to sleep at two o'clock in the morning. And I got up at seven. I don't know. What makes a good bedtime? And my dad always said, it's not when you go to sleep that matters. It's when you get up. <laughs> of course, so if you your dad set, has a quote. <laughs> my dad is like the best. I love my mom and my dad. Uh, you know, I had dinner with lunch today with them, and he was giving me advice already about my teaching. He's always telling me what I need to do, so he's fun. But anyway, yeah, he said, Pam, it's not... It's not that you go to bed, it's that you have to get up. So if you want to control the bedtime, you got to make sure you get up. Because if you get up too early, you're going to go to bed early. Case in point, my daughter, who, and I love my daughter, she lives with me. And, you know, she is now really moving into true adulthood. She's gone to school. She's she's now graduated. And she now has an actual career kind of job, Right. So they have put her in charge of opening the office. Now, this is a girl that would stay up all night long, sleep all day, you know, when she was off, you know, for the longest time. And now she has to open the office, right? And she has to be there because it's a medical situation. You know, she's she's works for a chiropractor and all this kind of stuff. So she's in charge of getting everything open. And I'll be talking to her and she's like, mom. I've got to go to bed. I can't be talking anymore. I've got to go to sleep or I won't get up. And that is at 730. <laughs> I've never thought that my daughter would go to bed at 730, 830 at night, but she gets up at 435 o'clock. So it's not the going to bed time that matters. It's the getting up. So it's all guided by when you have to get up. Unless you're like me and it doesn't really matter. <laughs> I say <laughs> I get up no matter what. So I will well, stay you, up all night you, long. You stay I, up pretty late. Like when we do. I do. Like I do. when we're like we're like on a Thursday night, you know, if we're sometimes we're behind or whatever and we need a blurb. And for people who don't know, you write the majority of them. And, uh, and so don't you know, critique me and they might yeah. be any good. <laughs> Now the secret's out. No, but you like, it'll be like, cause I'm, I'm a night owl. I always have been. I love the night. Like the other night, uh, like I didn't, I didn't go to sleep until like 4 a.m. Like the, uh, like yesterday. Now that's not me. But that's, now that's not normal. Like uh, usually like on, on a weeknight, like I don't, midnight's my bedtime. But I'm always shocked because it can be 1145 and you're like, here, just finished. And it's just it's it's hilarious because you you I don't you don't have a bedtime. You you fall asleep no. whenever you want and you wake up whenever you want. And the only thing you have to do is work volleyball and teach. And, and yeah, and I mean make dinner yeah, dates. Yeah, that's true. It's um, you know, my mom, she she, you know, of course everything goes back to my mom and dad and my own family, but my mother's always like, Pam, I don't think anybody can keep up with your schedule, you know, because I feel it so full. I can't, I can't afford a bedtime <laughs> so, and I have to get up in the mornings. Uh, I will say that sometimes, uh, 
I, I do the same routine in the morning, no matter what. So no matter what, I, I, I do the same exact thing in the morning so that I know exactly how long it takes me and I never change. I don't alter that routine and that helps me. But um, no, when I do the volleyball games and, you know, I used to coach and my parents were coaches. So so we didn't really have a strict bedtime you know, after we got a little bit older, because my mom and dad both were coaches. And so it was really normal for us after a game, which high school games end about 10 o'clock. And then you have to wind down because you have all this adrenaline. And so we would find ourselves on a Friday night, you know, like after a Friday night game, uh, mom and dad would need to talk about it. And so they would go to IHOP, you know, that stays open 24 hours and we would stay up there and they would be drawing. My dad would be drawing plays on the napkins and they would all be talking shop and we'd just be sitting there drinking whatever, you know, and coffee and eating our donuts. So I'm probably used to that because of that lifestyle. And then we'd have to get up in the morning. You just always have to get up. I will tell you that. And then, um, I guess I've just gotten used to it. But what I do is I can go for a long time. Uh, and then all of a sudden it's like my body goes, no, nope, you're done. And I'll sleep like I'll take one weekend or something. I'll sleep like the whole day on a Saturday or something. If I have the time, I usually take a nap on Sundays after church. You know, what's funny is I've been uh, like I told you, I went to bed at like 4 a.m. yesterday or today, I guess, for you this morning. But then I was up, <laughs> I was up at eight and I've been asleep or I've been awake all day, just kind of getting stuff done yeah. and everything. Like I don't, I'm not really, a, I used to be a really late sleeper. Like as a teenager, I'd stay up all night and then sleep all day. It was mm -hmm. really bad in the summer to where like, I would literally wake up at like 6 PM and I'm like, well, that's just my life. Or like, you know, some days we were waking up <laughs> right. and like never even seeing the sun. <laughs> <It> was like, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't do that anymore. Obviously I have, I have responsibilities and things that I have to take care of, but I just thought it was interesting because I have like, uh, like it's been a topic of discussion for a few of my friends and there's people who like they, people criticize me because I eat dinner so late. Right. You did it before we even came on this show. I did. Cause I you, told I you, told you telling me a story and I was like, Pam, I can't. My dinner. <laughs> we gotta go, Pam. I gotta cook. And, <laughs> but I eat late. Like I usually eat at like 9 PM ish, depending yeah. on no. if I'm cooking or whatever. And I can eat later than that. But, uh, it's because my, my bedtime's so late usually. And, but people are all like, what? I eat at six and I'm in bed by eight 30 or nine. And I just, it's oh, a yeah. very weird life for people who fall asleep like that. You almost can't trust someone who falls asleep that early. You know what I mean? I'm just right. kidding. Oh, I know. I mean, I, I kind of feel the same way. I'm like, what, what are you doing? Yeah, no, they get up early. Um, you know, there's some people real regimented. And of course, you know, they talk about yeah. the sleep you know, your sleep hours and, you know, your, your internal clock. And I guess I've just always ignored mine, but, um, but like I said, on that volleyball, you know, I, I do high school games, so I'm not getting home like during that volleyball season and, and all that. There's times I don't get home till 11 o'clock, 1130. Well, once you do that, you got to wind down. I, I don't, I'm not one that can just go to sleep. So I'll turn on a TV or read a book or something. And then, Finally, I'll go, oh, I got to go to bed. But as long as I don't keep my brain on, I can usually fall asleep. But I get up early. I get up, when I say I get up early, I usually get up about five o'clock every morning, no matter how late I go to bed. And then I have to force myself to go back to sleep if I have, you know, sometimes. 
So yeah, that's it. That's what I do. And I don't know how I function, but I do function and I'm fairly successful. I don't know. But I feel my day. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I just feel my days full. That's it. I'm just, I keep myself so busy. I don't have time to sleep. No, no sleep till Brooklyn. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> this is Crap the Draft. That's Pamela Trump, Jacob Chassay. We're two educators down here in the state of Texas doing what we love, talking about reading, writing, workshop, and everything in between. We hit big topics, small topics. We answer questions and so much more. If you're new here, welcome. We talk about a lot. We don't talk about sleeping on every episode. No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> we have fun here. We laugh. If you like to just have two educators who are still in school buildings doing what they love and just having a good old time on a microphone while also talking shop and hopefully helping some people stick around, subscribe. So you don't miss any other episodes. We drop an episode every single Friday. Sometimes we do some bonus stuff. There are usually about 45 minutes to an hour long, depending. Sometimes we get a little verbose and keep going. But if you want even more than that, after listening to this, you're like, man, this podcast is so good. Is there more episodes? You're in luck. You can join us on our Patreon page, just like Alicia, Brandy, Leah, Mark, Amy, Sarah, Rebecca, Courtney, Carol, Alyssa, Destiny, Lori, Natalie, Susan, Tracy, Andrea, Hannah, Lori, Jen, Matt, and Amanda do. They get bonus episodes every single month at the listener tier. At the listener plus tier, they get access to bonus training videos, including our craft and draft tutorial, our first week of workshop, and so much more. A lot of material over there just keeps building and building. The value just keeps going up every single month. We're going to probably be doing some training here in a little bit as we gear towards summer. Now that we kind of have a a way of doing it, maybe we'll do a few. Pam and I are going to figure all that out in between all the next coming weeks and how school's shutting down and summer is coming and all that jazz. But with all of that said, with what? Let's get to the conversation. All right. Okay. Ochoa. Yes. Topic of today. I usually do it in the intro, but I wanted to bring it here. Okay. When we think about what it means to keep the focus on students, when we say student-centered learning, when we say student driven when we say anything that puts kids first do you believe it when you hear other people say that like at a convention or in a staff development or anything like that do i believe that they mean what they're saying yeah or is it just a saying because it's the right thing to say that's what i'm saying like is it something that that most trainings leaders teachers want or is this something that sounds good in practice but or it sounds good verbally but we maybe don't act out that so i guess it's really two separate questions i'm asking you i guess let's yeah, start I with the first so. one do you do you when someone says that do you really think that they're student driven that they they are operating with that mindset well it just depends uh not always you know it's kind of like it's kind of like relationships let's build relationships i mean that is like something that everybody says but really what does that mean and so um because some people think building relationships is just you know being kind and being nice only but sometimes these kids need structure and routine and that's a part of building a relationship too you know so uh, i think i think when you're looking at that if somebody really says that i think it's in their practice i mean like like when like if it's a presenter 
And what they, whatever they're presenting, their style sometimes lets me know really if the kids are first or they're first. It's just a way that they go about it, their attitudes. Do you think that, like, I guess, I, I don't know, when I, when I think about like student-centered approaches, why is it so hard to be student-centered? I think this has kind of like been a theme of the last several episodes for us, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's because we're in testing season and it just kind Probably. of, you know, the, the kids get removed from the process <laughs> in a lot of ways. True. Um, you know, and it's just kind of the nature of the beast, but... Uh, I feel like it's it's difficult to really be student centered because there's a there's a lot of things that have to be in place to be student centered, right? So what are those things? You stole my question. Ah, I stole your question, so I need to answer that one. Is what you're right. saying? I can we can we can go back and forth. I go first. Like okay. I think right. I think the number one thing that has to be in place for a student centered approach is for a, a teacher's willingness to let go. Okay. Just a little bit, right? Doesn't have to be full, Mm -hmm. right? You and I have often given people advice on reading and writing workshop to where it's like, yes, you need to be able to let go and allow for um, the processes to take place. But it, you know, to each their own, like not everyone is comfortable with just, you know, a free for all, so to speak, but it's also, um, you don't have to be there's there's multiple ways of letting go and finding out what works for your class and your students. So but I think that has to be number one is just your ability to not be in control, your ability to allow failure. And I think that's a really interesting challenge for teachers, because mm. even though we know we learn through failure, everyone knows this intuitively. But even in education, we failure teaches you a lot. I would argue failure teaches you more than success in some ways. But we get so worried about falling behind. We get so worried about not being in the curriculum guide. We get so worried about not being able to make the testing deadline or the grading guideline. And so it's harder and harder to let go. And people just go, yeah, it's fine. I, I, I don't really need that. But then they'll, in the same breath, they'll talk about the importance of, of student-driven instruction. So I think it's really interesting. I don't know. What, what, what would you add to the list? So that's one, the ability to let go. What else do we got? Uh, I would say consider in the, in the classroom at, at itself, who's doing most of the work. I think if it's student driven, I think your kids would be doing most of the work and most of the thinking. Uh, I think if it's not student driven, the, the teacher's doing all of the thinking and doing the teaching and answering the questions for them. I agree with Yay. that. I agree. Yeah. No, because I was just processing. Um, I think and it's almost like, a, you know, you have to just kind of embrace the messiness, right? Like the mm-hmm. letting kids explore and, and having them have the answers and, and being able to teach through their answers. Right. I think that like specifically, yeah. I mean, both in reading and writing, but that's when you know you're dealing with a skilled educator when it doesn't really matter the answers they're providing because the educator isn't focused on their answers. They're focused on the thought process to get to the answer. Yeah. Because so, so you would follow that up with, so how did you, uh, let's go back to my dad, shall we? Sure. My dad, even he's still the star of the day, show. <laughs> he is. I love my dad. Now, like he tells me all the time. So Pam, you have to find out what the kids are thinking, how they got to that concept so you have to ask the question 
where did you get that thought from? Let's go back and, and see your thought process. So anyway, go ahead. I mean, truthfully, like that is, um, the, the like, cause you sit with a kid, right? Let's say they're writing, they're writing mm-hmm. a piece. You sit down with them. The piece is not really focused, but the kid maybe let's say they're passionate, right? Let's, let's do an easy scenario. They care about what they're writing. They're not really doing what you're teaching, but they're putting words on the page. So as an educator, you can do a couple things, right? I think a lot of people will go, no, this is wrong. You need to start over or you need to do this. You need to do that. AKA destroy their spirit. And then they don't want to do it at all because you're going to, you're going to, you're going to control. You're just like all the other ones. Yeah. Right. I knew this class was rubbish. Uh, So that that's like option one, option two, um, you don't really know what to do with it. And you're like, you feel like a failure because the kid isn't doing what you're teaching. And you're like, well, you know, I don't want to control it because you're trying to be student driven. You're trying to be student led, but you also don't really know where to go from there. And then I think the a third option and the ideal option, and it's, it's easier said than done, believe me, but being able to sit with the kids, see what they're doing, see that they're off track, but still teach them within whatever they're doing, being able to guide their learning through their mess up, because it's 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 just as important to kind of navigate your way out of that thing. Like, let, let me use a more concrete example than writing. So, like, okay. I remember uh, when I got when I got done being a literacy coach, um, I was sitting with these uh, back at my when I was when I, back into the classroom, we were doing a test. Uh, we're doing test corrections, right? Had a really smart girl who was very upset that she missed like these two questions, right? Mm-hmm. And my natural instinct was like, well, you're wrong. So go figure it out, right? Like, <laughs> just like, it doesn't matter what you say, you're wrong. But I kind of, uh, for whatever reason, I took time that day and I, I went and sat with her and, and I, I just asked her, I was like, okay, so literally walk me through your entire thought process on this. There you go. Mm-hmm. And you know what happened towards the end? I knew exactly how she rationalized it. It was a pretty good rationalization, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it was a, it was a very good argument. Now, ultimately, I could I, I didn't think it was a bad question. I think it was just it was a difficult one. But I think the right answer was the right one. This wasn't a case where I was like, oh, the question was bad. But because I sat with her and I asked her her thought process and I literally just listened and let her tell me, I knew how to help her after that. And yeah. so in a, in a very concrete way in the, that second scenario, I was student driven, even though we were doing something very standardized, like a test, I was student driven because I let them tell me literally what they did. And luckily I had the skill set at the time to learn from that. And then I taught her and then it was, it was done after that. And I think that that is a unique skill set that you only get with time. Well, I think so. I think, I think, um, and, and what, you know, cause time gives you practice, right? I mean, I didn't start out that way, but I mean, now I can look at something and, you know, I can take a kid's thinking and listen to them. And like you said, turn it around for them, but I haven't always been like that. So, yeah, I think your practice, the more that more you do, the better you get, but you have to let go first, going back to your first thing that you said. I mean, you have to be willing to let the messiness or the, the, you know, I heard somebody say one time learning is in the dissonance. In other words, there, if there's no dissonance, if there's no 
moment where a student's got to figure something out and they're struggling a little bit, then there's no learning going on. So you got to leave them alone long enough, but not too long. So another thing about being student centered is you really got to be a kid watcher. You got to watch your students and you got to recognize when too much is too much and you got to pull back. And so sometimes uh, I've got some students that really, really struggle. And um, and so you got to almost give them a break sometimes, say, you know, kind of make a deal with them. But but just sometimes know when you got to step in. And that's hard to know, too. When is to when do you step in and when do you not? And that's really the art of teaching, I think, is knowing those brush strokes, so to speak. Yeah. And that's actually a really good way to look at it because when you're thinking about just being student driven or student focused, uh, it is that art of you know, it's it's the it's what we talk about when we talk about kind of independent right, independent reading. We're not saying free reading and free writing. We're saying right specific targeted practice that happens to be supported by independent choice and independent freedom. There's, there's a, there's a massive difference between writing whatever you want and writing for a specific purpose with the goal of getting better at something, right? Those are, those are two separate things. Um, now free writing is great. Free reading is great, but in large part it's because of that. Now, when kids are doing that though, it's, it's, it's it's just as bad to let kids flounder for six weeks as it is to put them in a lockstep formation for six weeks. They both mm-hmm. do damage to the learner. Now, I think a lot of people would probably say that the lockstep approach, at least kids would at least get the content rather than just floundering around. But I would say that I was like, how much content are they getting? You know, Kelly Gallagher always talks about, you know, doing the he talks about the four by four classroom right four books four essays etc cetera, etc cetera. he's like you know i could sit there and tell them to read whatever i want but how many kids are actually doing the reading you know how many kids yeah. are really putting in the work to do this and so yeah it might on a rational sense sure telling kids to do something and saying you have this deadline to do it you know that that might be a way to move kids but it's also like what does your data say did the kids actually read it are you chasing down missing papers? Are you chasing down zeros all the time? Now we all are, but you know, is it, is it out of hand? Um, and I think, I think that's the tricky part is, but I, I think the, the, a lot of the power of that comes from if you give kids freedom is you get to sit back and really watch and listen. And then eventually you step in, right? Like you said, knowing when, Mm -hmm. knowing when to, not take away freedom, but add to their knowledge at the right time. And that's, that's a hard skill. Like that is an incredibly difficult thing to learn. And there's probably, I mean, I don't even know, like there's, I don't even know how you train people on that. I think it's, there's a lot of modeling. You kind of have to see a master teacher do that. Yeah, I do. And and I think that's where, uh, you know, like we actually do some of that in that Abydos writing Institute where we take people and show them how to, how to help the kids mold it. A lot of times it's in the way you ask your questions. It's in how you design what they're going to do next. You know, you give them a routine, if you will, but within that routine, there's freedom and there's open-ended questions. And then they have to explore their own writing. They have to explore each other's writings and they do so within the parameter of your questions. And by doing that, 
you still like when you're when we're trying to shape our essay or trying to give confidence or sharing, we do that or giving fe- feedback, peer feedback, then it's all in a particular, I mean, the teacher provides, if you will, the boundaries. But within those boundaries, they ha- it has to be open enough for them to actually work through the problems. And not everybody has the same problem. So it's got to be open enough to even work through multiple types of problems. And so uh, things like write down what you notice. Was it effective or not effective? You know, what you notice, was it effective or was it not effective? Well, first of all, that's pretty open-ended. They have to figure out what they notice, and then they have to figure out in relation to everything else, was what you said there effective? And and then you ask, why did it work? And how would you use that in your own writing? So now you've got a parameter there where they're actually taking maybe something that they're reading, and then now they're applying it to the writing. But the questions are open enough that they can answer them, but independent enough that it can be in their own writing or their own reading. I don't know. That just popped up. Yeah, I mean... That is, I was talking to a colleague, um, and she was talking about how in her district, they were having kind of this idea of what you kind of alluded to there, but this, you know, they chose to focus on reading comprehension, reading analysis, et cetera, et cetera, reading response first, kind of as a, just a mm-hmm. unit. And now what they're trying to do is transfer that to the writing side, right? Transfer it to, um, okay, so if we know what's effective in this piece of reading that we just did, now how do we do that as writers, right? And I think that's where, you know, read like a reader, read like a writer comes in, um, which for people who are new, check out that episode. We have a whole one on that, but that's that's one of the phrases that we try to think about a lot for Craft and Draft is, is constantly forcing kids to Think, apply, synthesize, but also have the the metacognitive ability to go, okay, so I'm the reader here, right? This is my, my goal as the reader is blank, right? My goal as a reader when I'm reading a informational article, skin the information that I need. My goal as a reader when I'm reading an argument is to decide, you know, a variety of things really is to decide if I agree with the argument, disagree, why. My goal to read fiction can be a variety of things, including fun, but it could also be character analysis, plot analysis, setting analysis, could be everything. But I think we lean really heavily on that and we never ask, or a lot of us don't ever get to the fact that kids have to think about that as writing. They have to go, it's one thing to get kids to write because they care, which everyone Mm -hmm. knows I love and getting them engaged and super passionate about it. It's another thing to get a kid to want that and go, okay, so what's the best way to do that? If I want to express myself in this way about this topic, how do I do that? And then have a toolbox where they can figure that out. Now, if you're teaching younger writers, they might not have a toolbox, which is where those, that's what model texts are, right? That becomes a toolbox of possibilities for kids, which is why it's very important that kids read widely independently, but also the teacher shows them Hey, there's there's a bunch of different ways to describe a setting. There's a bunch of different ways to express an idea um, and go through that versus we're going to write an article today. Here's the one article you're going to read for the next three weeks. Now you're going to write an article bit by bit until it looks exactly like this one thing. What what you just gave them one tool. 
I don't know. What's your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. And I think, um, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just, um, I lost my thoughts. <laughs> I know you've never done that. <laughs> I know I do all the time. It's okay. I mean, so let's, uh, we can, we can shift for a second. So, okay. I mean, because I think that, I don't know. I, I guess I, I want to round back to that. I wanted your thoughts on it. So I'm going to talk again. I know. So, 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 yeah, go ahead. It's okay. It is late tonight. Um, no, is no, it? It are uh, like when you're giving kids like a lot a variety of stuff and you're trying to build their toolbox. I think that's a really interesting way to think about that. Um, and I, I think a lot of curriculum is too narrow to do that. I think a lot of kids aren't reading enough to do that. Um, I think our approach isn't broad enough a lot of the times, but how do you do that? Like if you're, if you could just kind of philosophically talk about it, what tools do kids need in terms of their ability to go, Oh, I've seen something like that because we take that a lot into, uh, I think we, I think we take it for granted. Like if you're trying to write a research paper, but you've written 20, you pretty much know how the process is going to go for you. If you're trying to write a poem and you've written a bunch, you kind of know how that process is going to go. But if you're a fourth grader and you're being asked to do something and you've only seen one example of it, and that example might not even be very good or engaging, I mean, good luck. And then guess what? If you only do it once or twice that year, then they go on to fifth grade. Now, guess what? They literally only have two examples of this very specific writing. And so when we're thinking about how to do that, what are the ways to get a variety of stuff to kids in a way that's meaningful that stays in their toolbox. Well, that's where, uh, thank you. I appreciate you going back through that to me, like right now, like this last week, remember we were having our last talk about where it was skill base versus theme and all of that. So I decided to go with theme. And so this week alone, well, the last actually three weeks, um, we have been doing theme, but we've been doing different genres within that theme. So when I do a theme, I'm able to do that, but I'm also looking at skill. And so when, um, so what I'm doing is, uh, you know, my students right now are having trouble with, with uh, theme across multiple genres. That That's one of my, that's a hard one for some of my students. And so, they're not able to see how texts are connected unless I show them how they're connected. So, so for me, that's a skill that I've got to work on with these students. So I've got to show them multiple genres and I cannot do that when I have just a poetry unit. I cannot do that when I have just a short story unit. Now I'm not against short story units, poetry units, but at some point you got to put it all together where they can, actually look at so many different genres at the same time there it's just natural to be able to to see okay what's the author doing in this one what's the author doing in this genre what's the author doing you know so so this last week we did we did informational text um i had the students read actually a read a true story about a student that invented something and then we turned around and what they invented saved the lion so then we turned around and read a story about a lion 
and a relationship between uh, the fox and the lion. And then we turned around and we read a poem about overcoming obstacles. So what's connected is that they all had a problem and a solution. And so that's the other thing my students are, are struggling with is that type of structure. And you have those structures and multiple genres. We only, we have a tendency to teach like that's only in informational text, but I got news our characters have problems all the time. And so they have to have a problem. And then they're really, they're trying to solve the problem through the whole thing. So how do you follow that? What does that look like in a story? What does that look like in a poem? And so um, we read, um, uh, we read, uh, all of a sudden I lost the name of the poem, but I know it was written in 1917 by Edgar Guest. Uh, all of a sudden, but I can't think of the title, but anyway, it was, he talked about difficulties and, and overcoming those difficulties. And so that was my culminating uh, genre, which had the really the message, the whole theme. And then all of a sudden the kids, it was really neat to watch them because we wrote about them and then they wrote about their own difficulties. And then they wrote about what they thought the theme was, you know, so I had them write different things, but they had to write about each one every day in some different perspective. But at the very end, I said, so what did y'all learn about the the author's message in each one of these pieces and they got it they got it and they were talking about how um uh, they were talking about problem and solution and all of that so it was more like i had them explore it and then i culminated with what i wanted them to get and then i said so how does that work with the theme across all of those what's the message uh, that each author has has shared with us. And they were talking about how when you go through hard times, if you don't give up, you can go through it. And so that's really what the kids learned this week. And so I think that gives me confidence a little bit for their star, you know, because they have those paired passages and they have to be able to do that. And so uh, not every kid, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not talking about 100%. I have regular kids, just like everybody else. I have those who struggle, those who are like, I don't get anything. So you have to slow down and work with each one. But overall, I think it was really successful. So how do I get that? Well, I do that where we do multiple genres per week. And that's how I get them to practice lots of different things. And then they write a poem. I even had them, when we did the technology unit, they had to write a poem about technology. And they imitated because they imitated Raul Dahl's poem, Television. And then they had to write about a more current technology. And so I got some pretty good poems uh, from those kids as well. And so they're having to, when I have them write, they have to write, you know, I just encourage them to write a variety of things. So, and I use a lot of imitating. I don't know if I'm answering your question. You are. I think you. Oh, okay. You you made it there. I think a lot of people are gonna take a lot from this. But oh, Joe, I could have said it better myself. Ladies and gentlemen, a little shorter episode of Crafted Draft. Uh, we're just a little different on schedule today, but maybe you guys like this. I don't know. Maybe we should do shorter ones. Maybe we should just experiment with time. Maybe we should do a ten minute episode one day just to see what happens. Oh, Joe, what do you think? I don't know if we could contain it to 10 no, minutes, but you go Our right ahead and try. questions usually go 10 minutes. 
We can't. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to us and leave a review. Those reviews really do help. And I want to give a special shout out to Amanda, Matt, Jen, Lori, Hannah, Andrea, Tracy, Susan, Natalie, Lori, Destiny, Nalissa, Carol, Courtney, Rebecca, Sarah, Amy, Mark, Leah, Brandy, and Alicia for supporting us on the Patreon page. If you would like to support us, go over there and do so. If you can't do that, it is okay. Subscribe. And come back next week. We're going to have another fantastic episode. Send us a question if you want us to answer something. I know it's the end of the year. You're probably pondering next year already. So if that's you, send us a question. Maybe we can answer it. But know that we are here for you.